The Heather McCoy Show. And welcome to The Heather McCoy Show. In our middle segment today, we'll have Linda Lipsing from the American Association for Justice to talk about food giant General Mills applying a terms of service to its products uh, that had people go to binding arbitration rather than the court system. And then uh, they reversed their course two days later after customer outraged on Twitter and Facebook got a hold of them. Then rounding out the hour, we'll have Robert Larson join us from the other side of Cleveland National Forest. But first, we'll start off with our regular contributor, the blogger behind com, Neil DeMoss. Welcome to the show, Neil. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. Um, so have you had a Twitter outrage that made you reverse course? <laughs> no, 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 I have not. Just just uh, General Mills and Darren Ravel. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I have, no, nobody's, nobody's forced me to reverse course on anything. I managed uh, not to try and seize any rights that uh, that didn't belong to me by fiat. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's been a good week so far. Yeah, it's been a few weeks since we last talked about David Beckham's quest to get an MLS franchise in the city of Miami. His number one desired location for a soccer-only stadium is the Port of Miami. Royal Caribbean Cruises has formed a corporate Not My Backyard campaign against an MLS stadium in the Miami Port area. That alone might not stop the stadium, but it, the group did take out an advertisement in the Miami Herald with the headline, Here We Go Again, tying David Beckham's efforts to the Miami Marlins stadium debacle. Could that association with the Marlins kill the whole 29 location thing altogether? Um, probably not. Um, the, the, you know, I, I think more likely what is going to hurt this location is the fact that there's a major uh, corporate opponent, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, right? The, the best way, um, the most likely determinant of whether a stadium deal fails or not isn't about whether it's a good idea or not. It's about how powerful the people are who oppose it. Um, so having Royal Caribbean on the other side is definitely not helping Beckham at this site. Um, but, you know, he can always come back with one of the other sites and say, okay, you know, now we've got a deal that, you know, that, that nobody important opposes. Um, and, again, he's not asking for a lot of money we don't think. Um, you know, he's asking for the use of public land, but he says he'll pay fair market value, but he hasn't said how much that'll be. He's definitely asking for the $2 million a year in sales tax rebates that other teams in Florida get, because Florida is nuts. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> not to mince words. And then other than that, it's kind of all up in the air. So, I mean, I think he probably, I mean, it certainly doesn't help that the Marlins deal is so awful and... Um, there, uh, you know, anybody trying to build anything in in South Florida right now is going to have to deal with that. Um, but I I don't think that that's necessarily a deal breaker for him. It just makes it more of an uphill battle. And I think, you know, he he's definitely made it even more uphill battle for, by himself for himself by picking this site that you know is on an island, um, only accessible by a single bridge that leads to downtown Miami. Um, so the traffic is going to be a huge problem. It's going to be a huge problem in terms of the, you know, the cruise ships that also use the site. Um, it seems like the worst possible site he could pick in terms of actually getting this thing approved. But I guess you know you start by asking for the moon, and then you can always negotiate yourself down to a, a smaller moon. Well, I like what you wrote about the Atlanta getting an MLS team where, you know, they, they're going to be using an existing building. So it's not like if it fails in Atlanta, they're stuck with a dinosaur. 
um, the MLS should know that a big Latin, Latin market doesn't automatically translate to sick ticket sales. Miami, the Miami Marlins don't have a huge fan base, let alone a Latin one. The MLS itself has tried twice in Florida, uh, once in Miami and Tampa Bay, and that failed. And uh, the LA Chivas USA, that failed too. Um, it just right. seems like it's a false equation. Oh, Latin people will enjoy soccer. Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of their, it's like the, the MLS equivalent of the NHL's Southern strategy, right? Where it's like Sunbelt strategy, where it's like, um, you know, okay, we're going to put teams in Atlanta and Miami and Orlando, and suddenly there'll be a bunch of teams all really close to each other. So there'll be a natural rivalry. And I, I, I never quite understood that whole, you know, we want to have a lot of teams really close to each other in the age of airplanes. Um, so, I mean, I guess theoretically people from Atlanta might travel down to Orlando for road games or something. Yeah. Um, but it, it just seems awfully odd. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, you point out that the, the, the Atlanta team's going to be playing in the football stadium. Miami happens to have a football stadium. <laughs> if that's an opportunity, you know, if that's yeah. an option, if suddenly uh, it's okay to be playing in non-soccer-specific facilities, um, there's nothing wrong with putting a team in um, whatever pro player stadium is called these days. I, I honestly <laughs> forgot. Dolphin Stadium. Uh, Sun Life? I grew Sun up Life with... I grew up with uh, Joe Robbie, so that's how it is in my brain. But... Joe Robbie, I mean, I, whatever it's called, the, the the big the big rectangular thing that the Marlins moved out of. Um, the they could play there, you know. I mean, or they could at least play there for a few years and see if they uh, if they you know build a fan base that's worth building a new a new stadium. But um, you know, for whatever reason, I think MLS has decided that the line they're going to draw in the sand is either we want a brand new football stadium or we want a um, soccer-only stadium. Or a semi-new uh, baseball want stadium. An older football stadium. <laughs> yeah. so. Or a semi-new baseball stadium, too. Or, right, semi-new, sorry, football <laughs> yeah. or baseball, of course, yeah. uh, with the Yankees stadium. Um, you know, I mean, to some degree, MLS kind of backed itself into a corner by giving Beckham the right to get an expansion franchise for a cheap price. Um, and Beckham wants to put it in Miami, but they get to, you know, the league still gets to say, okay, well, we have these conditions. So they're saying, okay, we want a new stadium. So Beckham, if he wants his team in Miami, has to come up with a new stadium somehow. So it's a weird, like, you know, bunch of interlocking leverage going on here, um, where Miami really could say to Beckham, "Well, you want this stadium so badly, you put it where we tell you to, because if you don't get it, then you don't get your team." Yeah. Um, but again, you know, mayors are just terrible at this game. Oh, definitely. Uh, for the first time in nearly two years, we've been doing our Tuesday morning get-togethers on the radio. We've got two new arenas that are going to be built with entirely private money. One is in San Francisco for the Golden State Warriors. The other one is in Las Vegas, built by MGMAEG. What brings about this splendid occasion? Um, you know, I think San Francisco and Las Vegas being just really crazy markets. Um, you know, San Francisco, you know, the Warriors owners have been trying to build this arena on the waterfront on the bay for a couple of years now and it was absolutely getting nowhere in this tremendous opposition and i think they realized you know rather than spending 200 million dollars on shoring up the piers let's just spend 200 million dollars on buying some land a little further south of there where they're going to build a new a new uh, uh street car line the mini metro line um anyway and and you know just just uh you know take the path of least resistance but yeah i mean it's still going to be over a billion dollars they're going to be spending on this thing. And I think the the reason is it's the San Francisco market. You know, we've already seen San Francisco basically has the two only mostly privately built stadiums 
um, it's the Bay Area, I should say, right, with the Giant yeah. Stadium and the new 49ers Stadium uh, in Santa Clara. Um, and, you know, I think just San Francisco is such an odd market. There's so much money there, and it doesn't really have an arena. You know, forget about the Warriors. Just look at, uh, at uh, concerts. You know, concerts can only really play the Cow Palace if they want a big arena, and Cow Palace is like 12,000 or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's sort of baffling that there isn't, hasn't been a 20,000-seat arena built there before now. Um, but I guess, you know, the Warriors owners are saying, okay, strike while the iron is hot. Again, it's a tremendous amount of money to put into this, and arenas generally don't make that much money. But San Francisco might be the one place where that could happen. Then Las Vegas... Um, you know, it's all about the, the battles between the different, uh, different casinos and things for, for uh, market share. Um, and again, you have a really strange market there where it's not about whether people will come and see the local sports team. It's about, you know, where you can have, you know, Billy Joel play when he comes to town because people are going to go to Vegas and want to go see Billy Joel or Celine Dion or, you know, whoever it is. Um, the people who go to Vegas want to go see. Um, and, uh, you know, I think MGM has been like, just decided, okay, well, you know, we want to be the first to get the shovel on the ground and we want to be the first to get an arena up so that nobody else does it. Um, it they're interesting markets in that, you know, because of, again, Las Vegas having this sort of competition for, for arena space, um, and San Francisco having, you know, a real resistance. I mean, you know, they've consistently said no to any sort of public subsidies for sports facilities. Um, it sort of forces it into, Seeing what we what would happen, um, you know, if in the rest of the world, if uh, teams and developers just had to decide whether to build arenas with their own money. Yeah. Um, and I think what would likely happen is you would get new arenas in places like San Francisco and Las Vegas, and a lot of other places would just have to deal with the old arenas, which would, again, not be the most terrible thing. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. With the Warriors, you know, potentially moving out of Oracle Arena, does that unwedge some of the situation with the Raiders and A's with their troubles at the Coliseum that they want so desperately out of? Yeah, I assume that this doesn't mean that they're just going to knock down the Oracle Arena, um, because, you know, even with a new arena across the bay, it still can draw, can draw concerts. Um, but maybe, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's it certainly would free up a bunch of land if they say we're going to build football and baseball or build a new football and rehab the Coliseum for baseball or any of the you know many things that you could do. Um, I, my guess is, given the way things are going, um, unless there's some secret negotiations between the Raiders and Oakland that are going much faster than I've heard, um, we may well see the, Ra- the Warriors move out and sort of see what the effect is on Oakland before any decisions get, have to be made. Um, because it could easily be 2019 before you know <laughs> Oakland figures out what it's doing, uh, yeah. the Raiders figure out what they're doing, uh, which again wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. No, I mean, definitely you know, not. Yeah, I mean that that the, the the last thing really Oakland or the Raiders or the A's need is is to rush into anything at this point and sort of you know if uh, if the Warriors moving out yeah it does clear up some some possibilities then great. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA have new owners. Do you have an over/under of when we should expect Chris Hansen to come back in the stories? Oh, Chris Hansen's already back in the story. I've already <laughs> seen people saying, like, "Oh, you know, I'm sure that this is uh, that this is just going to mean that the Milwaukee's not going to put put up money for a new arena and they're going to move to uh, to Seattle in a couple of years." Um, so, you know, what we've had now is the NBA has this clause in the sale agreement that they can buy back the team if there's no new arena. Um, and presumably shop it around to Seattle or wherever else. 
and uh, it's it's really a brilliant move. I mean, we've seen we've seen leagues before sort of be the the heavy um, and say you know so that owners can say, hey, it's not me. I want to keep the team here, but you know those those guys back at the league, you know, you don't want to get them involved because you know they they're they're tough and they're not going to. So um, you know the NBA is, is has basically is positioned itself as the as as bad cop to be able to say, okay, well if you don't build a new arena. Regardless of who the current owners are, we'll just take the team away and uh, and and move it somewhere else. Um, and you know, I think uh, everybody got really excited when the team was sold. And you know, Herb Cole, the old owner, said he was going to put in a hundred million dollars. New new owners said they're going to put in a hundred million dollars, which still left something like two hundred fifty million dollars unaccounted for, which is exactly where things were before the sale. But everybody got all excited. Oh, the team's staying in Milwaukee. And I, you know, there's a reason why I was skeptical and said this is going to be move threats as as uh, as a you know sort of veiled move threats as it has been in the past and I think we're already seeing that. Oh definitely. I love what the Milwaukee Alderman uh, Nick Kovacs said about the publicly funding a new arena. He said basically the NBA has been printing free money for 20 years. I'm not asking them not to make money. I'm just asking them to cover the capital investment that allows them to make money. I'm an old-fashioned guy. I still like capitalism. And he went on to say, I don't believe in Vladimir Putin-style corporate socialism, which is what the NBA believes in. And you can quote me on that. How long does he breathe fire like that? I don't know. I, I, I'm really not up on the uh, you know Milwaukee Board of Aldermen situation. So <laughs> yeah. this is the first time he's kind of come onto our radar. But he he certainly made a great speech there. Yeah, that's um, really great. And uh, you know, I, th- people forget that there's a lot of really there's a lot of animosity in Milwaukee towards public funding for an arena for the Bucks. Um, you know, not just among elected officials, but you know, among the public in general. This is a city that built a stadium for the Brewers um, against the public's wishes um, by the governor. You know, it was going to fail in the, uh, in the um, state legislature, and the governor called in one of the state legislators at the last minute um, and had a private meeting with him, and the guy came out of the meeting and changed his vote, and that's how come the thing got approved, and they had a you know, five-county-wide sales tax hike um, that people were really not happy with. Um, and, you know, it's not quite the Miami Marlins situation, but there's still people feel very burned. And it's, you know, again, it's going to be a very, very tough lift to get that money approved there. Um, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, this is, this is going to be another one of those real hard situations like Sacramento, I think, where you're going to have, you know, the NBA forced to really pull out, or, or the Minnesota Vikings, you know, where I expected to go down the, down to the wire, where the you know the league is going to have to really pull out the threats and say, you know, we've got the moving vans warmed up. <laughs> yeah. If uh, if you don't approve this thing, and then see if the see if the city council blinks. Yeah, definitely. Um, in a non-stadium uh, story, what do you think of all the backlash that NCAA President Mark Immer is taking from first the listeners of the horrible Mike and Mike show on Twitter, then Dan Patrick laying him out pretty well on the radio? Uh, it, what's the NCAA's? What are they going to look like in ten years if this continues? Well, I mean. You know they're already facing tremendous lawsuits, um, and I I don't know. You know I don't know I don't know whether it's going to be one year or ten years or thirty years, um, but it certainly seems like they're playing the end game very very poorly. Yeah. Um, you know I mean his comments about I mean the NCAA's argument basically seems to come down to um, well you know you know these guys should just be happy to uh, 
to uh, be playing at all, you know. I mean, we could be bringing in CFL players if we wanted to, <laughs> if we were about paying people. You know, they should just be glad they're playing football for free, which, you know, I mean, isn't this the same argument that went on about about uh, unions in pro sports originally? You know, yeah. hey, these guys are getting paid to play a game, you know. I'm sure anybody in the stands would love to be doing that. Um, it's It's... A stupid argument it was a stupid argument then, and 50 years later, they're still making the same stupid argument of, you know, uh, sports is fun, therefore you shouldn't have to get it. you shouldn't be paid <laughs> to do it for a living. Yeah. Um, and and I guess oh, you know, we're giving you scholarships, so what more do you want? Blood. Um, I think most people at this point have acknowledged that 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 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, even people who are unhappy with uh, with with you know, the professionalization of college sports or whatever. Um, it's interesting. I was just reading uh, a book about the early years of baseball in the, like, 1850s and 60s, um, and you had similar problem arguments then, you know, where people were saying, oh, you know, we don't want to have professional players. Um, and, uh, you know, the Cincinnati Reds first got started because they were the first team that decided, man, we're getting beaten all these intercity competitions. We're just going to go and hire a bunch of players regardless of whether or not it's the Cincinnati. And... You know, there was a lot of resistance to that, but, I mean, you know, you couldn't stop it. I mean, there's basically, if there's money to be made, people are going to be spending money on it one way or another, and that's why, you know, you have tremendous amounts of money in the NCAA, why you have tremendous amounts of money being played to coaches, why you have all this, you know, fights over under-the-table payments to players and, and recruiting violations and things like that. Um, you know, it, it, whether you like it or not, College sports is a multi-billion-dollar business right now. You know, it's not just you know a bunch of students going out and playing games for fun. Um, and I think that most people acknowledge that that barn door cannot be closed. But um, you know, it's a question of at what point the courts are going to decide to force the NCAA to acknowledge that. Yeah, the thing that really turned my opinion was the fact that there are on one-year scholarships, essentially like an NFL contract, where if you get right. hurt, the rest of the deal is void. And the other thing is they don't have really workers' comp insurance after the fact they played for their school. So if they lose their scholarship after getting injured, they're just, you know, SOL. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, even just, you know, not in a, in a, uh, in, a in terms of, fair pay, but just in terms of any kind of, uh, uh, like you said, job protections or, or, uh, or you know, um, protections in case they get, they get hurt, hurt on the job. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just absolutely awful. I think that's what a lot, of the, a lot of the attempts at union organizing are about. It's not, oh, we want to get paid. It's that we want to have protections that we would get from this. Um, it seems like something has to break at some point. I mean, it did, you know, we've seen, we saw it with a lot of graduate student unions where there was fights against that, and eventually it, uh, you know, uh, schools started giving in. Um, again, I think, I think 20, 30 years from now, we will look back at this time in the NCAA the way we look back at, you know, the times of the baseball reserve clause, you know, and when, when uh, owners could just say to players, oh, you play for me for what I agree to pay you, or else you don't play at all. Um, and this will seem like the dark ages of college sports. Um, whether we that that change will come again in one year or ten years or thirty years, I couldn't tell you. But I think it will be something that will be forced on the NCAA, um, not that they will that they will agree to uh, agree to give into. Last question was: What is the name of the book that you're reading about 1890s baseball? The book that I'm reading about 1890s baseball. Oh, I have to remember what it's called. It's uh, something the early years. It's like a series of three books by Harold Seymour, 
I remember everything about it. It was originally written back in the 60s and uh, got updated like 30 years later by the guy who, uh, the guy who wrote it. Um, and uh, and uh, I was asking Roger Knoll, the Stanford economist, something about the early years of baseball, about territorial rights, I think, in the Giants. And he said, oh, man, you haven't read these books. You absolutely have to. Um, and uh, I don't know where I put the book right now, so I can't tell you. Harold Seymour, three, three <laughs> book series. I'm sure there's only one of them. Um, but it's an awful lot of fun. Yeah, I'll have to definitely check that out. Thanks for being on the show. And my guest has been Neil DeMoss. He runs fieldofschemes.com. And uh, we'll talk to you on the show next week. Talk next week. Okay, this is, of course, this is the Heather McCoy Show.